I want to invite you to open your Bible to the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. Today we're, um, we're going to complete the seventh of a seven-part series on Out of the Ordinary. We're talking about the amazing way that God, by His grace and guidance in our lives, uses ordinary people. It sounds simple to say, but it's easy to forget this, that one of the really remarkable things about coming to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior is, a, is, a, is the fact, the assurance, that as the shepherd of our life, He has ways to be sure that we can be sure of being guided and know that the shepherd has made preparation before us of where we're going. That doesn't take the uncertainties out of life. That doesn't iron out the ironies of life or the discrepancies of our understanding. But what it does is it anchors us in what the book of Hebrews speaks of as a rock-solid faith. I want to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 10 and look at the beginning of a story that shows us that the shepherding care of Almighty God is a continuously amazing fact upon which you can depend. Also, this 10th chapter of the book of Acts shows us a turning point in the experience of the early church that was very vital. It was not only on an individual level, people discovering what it means that Jesus is my good shepherd, shepherd, bishop of my soul, but also that God was doing something profound in tearing down the wall of division between Jew and Gentile. And this is a big theme in the New Testament, the amazing way that promises given centuries before the birth of Jesus about the coming Messiah, that they were intended for the blessing of the entire world. So you could say, in a way, that Acts chapter 10, is a, it's a very long story. We don't have time to read the whole story, of course. But this long story in Acts 10, which is actually repeated partially in chapter 11 because of the significance that it had to the early church, this story powerfully demonstrates that God gives to ordinary people an extraordinary opportunity to know the shepherding care of Almighty God. We begin at Acts chapter 10, verse 1, where we find a Roman centurion at a place called Caesarea. Now, Caesarea, that first name that you see at the top of that first verse, Caesarea was a very significant city, a small city but very significant, on the seacoast of the Mediterranean, where the Roman Empire, when they took over captive peoples, they set up their governmental uh, headquarters, where they dispatched their military regiments, and where courts were held, the judicial nerve center, really, of the, of the Roman Empire, was in these outposts wherever smaller countries had been conquered. Now, we know that the Jewish people, of course, were under this Roman rule, 
And the, the place of Caesarea became significant in the lives of many of these apostles that we've already talked about because it was a place where the decisions of the Roman Empire were localized for the people of Judea. And in the life of the Apostle Paul that we looked at last week, it becomes a, a very significant turning point because at one point, later in the book of Acts, Paul is arrested and has appealed to go all the way to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen and is jailed under a fairly benevolent kind of imprisonment there at Caesarea. He was in harsher prison experiences later in another part of the Roman Empire. But here he is in a place where many of the early documents of the New Testament were being written because God provided in his shepherding care for a time for them to gather up all the facts of what had already happened as they were spreading the gospel around the world, and this became a turning point city. Here at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Do you see that in your own Bible in Acts 10.1? And Cornelius is a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. This is, a, this is an introduction to someone who was not of the Jewish faith. Now for us today, it's hard to kind of step back into this world because we're so used to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're so used to talking about things that have nothing to do with ethnic uh, divisions, of course, because we know our Lord and Savior triumphs over all of that. And where do you find real love? Where do you find real respect for people of a different ethnic background? Where do you find a real heart respect for people of very diverse experiences in life than you? Well, it comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're used to it because, partly because our culture has benefited, even people today who don't believe in Jesus, have benefited from the gospel being proclaimed in our nation since its founding in such a way that when we hear of racism and, and ethnic hatred, we're shocked by it. We're, we're repulsed by it. It's contrary to what we know of, of the love of God. So this is a point in the Bible where it's very helpful to kind of step back and think for a minute how strongly at this point the Jewish people had learned from childhood that the unique way they experienced their culture had the blessing of God on it in a very unique and profound way, and that not just anybody could get into that blessing. In other words, this was, kind of a, this was a, a very cultural, tightly bound understanding. Then, when Jesus was born of the Jewish people, born of a Jewish mother, raised in a Jewish culture, grew up as a Jewish young man, confounded the rabbis in the temple with the, the, the breadth of his knowledge, even as a 12-year-old, Jesus himself was Jewish. And he even explained why in John chapter 4 when the, he was talking to a Samaritan woman and she began to kind of talk about the cultural divisions between the Jews and the Samaritans. And do you remember what Jesus said? Well, he said, truly, 
on a natural level, salvation is of the Jews. Why? Because he sent the promised Messiah to the promised people in the promised land to fulfill his plan for the Redeemer to fulfill all of those prophecies. But in that same breath, Jesus explained to the woman at the well, the reason I'm here, the reason you can talk to me in person, is the whole purpose of that was to bring the water of life to every thirsty soul. Now, I want to hit this that as a, as a point first and foremost for us to understand because that's really the conclusion of this message today. That is... When we get to the end of this entire account, the entire 10th chapter of Acts that we won't read today, it comes to this wonderful point of conclusion. And and that is that in the gospel grace, in the free gift of God's love in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit's outpouring is for all who thirst for the living God. Think about the book of Acts that you hold in your hand right now. And the book of Acts is 28 chapters of explanation about what happened to ordinary people right after the risen Lord gave his apostles their final instructions and then ascended bodily to the right hand of Almighty God in heaven. From that point in Acts 1.11, all through this 10th chapter and all through the... What we're seeing is the result of the Holy Spirit's outpouring into the hearts of thirsty people. Now, we may thirst for many different things in life, but above all, our thirst for the living God is a deep part of how we're designed. Now, there are many things in life that obscure that. There are many things in life that get in the way of that. There are many things in life that distract us from that. But what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, 11 and 14, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him, it shall be in him or her a spring of water springing up to everlasting life. And if there was any question about what his intent was, that this would be global, that this would be for all ethnic groups, that this would blanket the globe with the grace of God so that people could hear of his redeeming love. If there was any question about that, Jesus absolutely wrapped it up in his explanation to that woman when he said, the Father in heaven is seeking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And in the very saying of that, Jesus was announcing that his life mission in the resurrection was good news to the entire globe. Now that's kind of the big picture. That's a big picture of this global gospel. That's a big picture of why the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, why the gift of the Holy Spirit is so prominent in these pages of the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. Sometime this week it would be a a, a very, very refreshing, I think, experience, and I would encourage you to do it, just to take the book of Acts home and maybe 
across the course of five, six, seven days, read all 28 chapters. I think you'd find it just absolutely riveting. As you think about this, that big picture is God loves the world. So he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And yet the question often is, in a realistic and tangible way in a local community, are people truly open to individuals who are radically different than they are getting the same measure of love? And the real test of that is how do we demonstrate that love? Now, this story about Cornelius in, in Caesarea is, is more like a, a, um, a zoom lens zooming in on a very classic example in the book of Acts of how, how God brought this vision to pass. You see, deep in the heart of this man Cornelius in Acts 10.1 is a thirst for the living God. Now, we know it in a, in a couple of ways that's reflected in the text. First of all, he is, on a natural level, it's interesting that he's a man of great influence. The, the, uh, the tagline there in that first verse describes Cornelius as a part of the Italian regiment of the centurions. It's, it's intriguing. A centurion typically would be a commander over a hundred. In the, in the time that, in that Caesarea sort of headquarters of Rome or sub-headquarters of Rome over Judea, there was a, a regular practice of taking one-tenth of a legion and calling them centurions. If he was one of those, he would be a, a leader over 600. But there was archaeological evidence found around 69 AD of an inscription that indicates uh, another order of the Italian regiment. And that one is what they called an auxiliary band that was posted there at Caesarea and makes it very likely historically that this man Cornelius was a commander over a thousand Roman soldiers. And whether it was the lower number or the higher, what is real clear from verse 1 to 5 of Acts 10 is that this Cornelius is a man of great influence. An ordinary man, yes, but a man with a prominence of responsibility that makes the spiritual quest that was in his heart far, far more significant than many people may have realized. And let's see how it's described. If you go back into your Bible at Acts 10, verse 2 and 3, it says that Cornelius and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. They were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. One translation says, he glued his eyes to the angel. What is it, Lord? He asked. How many of you would be a little bit startled uh, tomorrow morning if an angel appeared right there in your dwelling? Some of us say, we'd like to have that. But actually, one of the reasons for this story, the ordinary, out of the ordinary, and God's extraordinary way of doing this, is that it's designed to show that what God has given us through the power of the Holy Spirit is just riveting, we're just not as much aware of it. 
And the, and, and the angelic visit highlights an ongoing 365 days a year, 24-7 promise of God that Jesus gave in John 16, 18 when he said, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. What we're going to look at in the Cornelius event is that the ordinary is part of God's plan and the extraordinary inbreakings of the power of God demonstrate that we should all value even more the dailiness, the continuousness of the Holy Spirit's presence. So the angel says, Cornelius, and Cornelius says, what is it, Lord? And the angel answered, look at that in Acts 10, 4. Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. Oh my, this is, this is such a beautiful thing to see. Now, we talked about the fact that the Gentiles, non-Jews, in a sense, felt like outcasts. We talked about the Samaritan woman who uh, was what they called a mixed breed in that day. And we saw that Jesus showed the Samaritan woman a different order of worship is coming after the resurrection. And we saw that that promise from God meant that every believer, every person who thirsts for the living God, will be given the opportunity to experience this gift of life. It is why we go out to share the gospel of Jesus. And once that takes place, then we become a part of a people of worship. But it's also proving that God has put a thirst within people's hearts that is expressed in so many different ways. And if we ask ourselves the question, how does a person who has not yet heard about Jesus, how does, how does the Lord see them? Well, this story kind of shows us this. Because the, the wording in verse 4 is that God is sending an angel to, to visibly say that even though Cornelius has not yet heard about Jesus of Nazareth, that God sees that yearning of his heart and in fact, it's quite interesting that the biblical language that is used here is, is language that is expressive of the Levitical sacrificial system of Israel. So that in the land of Israel, they had five types of offerings that were commanded, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, and the restitution offering. And those were commanded back in the book of Leviticus. Now, again, we know that only the Jews could benefit from these, these Levitical sacrificial services. But if you see in the text that Cornelius was a God-fearer, that describes a certain kind of Gentile, a non-Jew, who knew that he wasn't in the Jewish promises, but had such a love for God that they went to synagogues and tried to learn everything they could about what would honor the God of Israel. What would honor the Creator God? What would honor Yahweh the living God? And it's notable that in that fourth verse, 
the angel's message back to Cornelius contains a Hebrew expression directly from that burnt offering, which was the first of the five, and that Hebrew expression is Ola, your, your offerings. Think of it, a guy, he, he's not yet heard the gospel, but God says, the offerings you've been bringing out of your love for God are like the ascending, the ola, which was the technical word used for the burnt offering of the Israelis, and the Hebrew word conveys a word picture of the rising of the smoke of sacrifice, which Leviticus tells us, repeatedly, was an aroma very pleasing in the presence of God. Now, what could that tell us about Cornelius? And what could that tell us about some of our unsaved neighbors? And what could that tell us about a co-worker or a friend or a loved one in our family or in our community that we know has no belief in Christ, isn't a Christian, and yet might we step back and say, Lord, kindle a thirst in her heart for you. Stir a hunger in his heart for you. And begin to pray for that yearning to develop. The Cornelius story has helped me to come to see my neighbors, my unsaved friends, unsaved loved ones in my family. It's helped me to see God has ways of bringing across a person's path something that causes a yearning to know him. We've all seen it and experienced it, and it's a wonderful reminder that in the power of the good news of Jesus Christ, our calling is to sow the seed like sowers, but always be praying that God prepare the soil of people's hearts. And in tender, often astounding, and sometimes very surprising ways, this yearning, this thirst for God begins to arise. Now, that takes us to the next part of this as we see that in a sense, even embedded within these offerings that he was bringing, there's a principle that we can learn from the way the angel addressed him, and I call it the genius of generosity. A friend of mine in Texas puts it this way, God gives people more to be generous with. And it's interesting that Jesus, the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13, and relates the fact that people who are hearing God's word, even if it's puzzling to them, and they say, well, I don't understand it, but I want to know more. Have you ever been in that position? I don't really grasp this yet. But I want to know more. I, that happened to me at the Air and Space Museum. Has it ever happened to you in the Smithsonian? <laughs> of course. You know, you go in there, you, you walk in, around in the Air and Space Museum, and, you, and you've read it. I didn't even understand what I just read. <laughs> but I don't want to walk out the door. I want to go to the next exhibit and learn more. And hey, let me put it this way, if you do it at the Aaron Ministry or one of the other Smithsonian, uh, an even far higher priority is get over there to the Bible Museum and do the museum as well. But the, but the beauty of it, all of that comes from God. 
And my point is that when we encounter something we don't understand, Jesus in the parables uses this as a kind of a trigger point to kind of test out or tease out the thirst that's in people's hearts. And the apostles were surprised because they said, Lord, why do you speak to them in parables? He said, ah. He said, to one, though to whom who has much, more will be given. But to him who does not esteem what he's being offered, he'll receive less. Now that sounded unfair to them on the surface, but the, the spiritual logic of that is profound. Because he was really saying, what happens is, God to intrigue us and draw us to a knowledge of a living relationship with our Savior. And in my heart, if I say, well, I don't quite get this, or this isn't quite my thing, they're not playing my kind of music, <laughs> but I'm still hungry for more. Have you, I've been in environments where the music was weird, but the message was true. And, and so where I, what I yearn for, what I see in Cornelius is a yearning that was in his heart. Now jump down to that um, fifth verse of, of Acts 10, and it says, Send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. Well, it's really a, a pretty amazing thing to see. Here's a guy, he's had this vision. The vision has kind of upended his life in a way, and it is a response to a deep yearning and thirst in his life, and God has used his offerings to bless other people, but also to kindle even further that yearning, that desire in his heart. But the story turns on the guidance of God. And notice that it says that they went to Joppa, and after noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof top to pray. Now this is the, the site of today of that ancient site on the seacoast of the Mediterranean where historians say that Peter went onto the rooftop to pray. And we know that Peter at this point was being mightily used of God in bringing the gospel all throughout that region of Judea. But God was preparing Peter for a turning point in his life that was going to coincide in an amazing way with the angel's message to Cornelius. So Peter goes to the rooftop. He's at noontime, kind of waiting for lunch to be prepared, so to speak, he falls into sleep and falls into a trance, and the Lord shows him the most amazing vision. Really weird on one level when you think about it. There is a sheet being lowered down from heaven, and the corners of that sheet are tied at the top. Luke uses medical terminology for the little strands that tie the sheet as if to indicate God is doing something that's going to bring a, a, a radical change to the world, and he's lowering it down in front of Peter, and Peter sees a sheet full of unclean animals. What to a kosher Jew would be alarming. And Peter says to God what a typical Jewish man would say, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. 
I've never had boiled shrimp in my whole life, Lord. You know, I don't have bacon with my eggs. And, and yet, this sheet is being lowered down, and in that sheet, being held up by a strands at the top, that there are all kinds of unclean animals. And the voice that comes from God is, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Look at verse 14. Surely not, Lord. Peter replied, I have never eaten anything impure or clean. And then the voice speaks again a second time. Do you see it in Acts 10, 15? Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back up to heaven. Wow. Was this a nightmare? Was this had pizza the night before? Kosher pizza or whatever? Who knows? No, Peter understood immediately. This is directly from God, but he was perplexed. Look at verse 17. Peter was perplexed about the meaning of the vision, and at that very moment, the men sent by Cornelius from Caesarea found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out. While Peter is wondering about the meaning of the vision, there are voices, there are people knocking at the door. Is there a Simon Peter here? And while Peter was still thinking about the vision in verse 19, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Now, remember we started today talking about Jesus is our shepherd. He guides us in ways we could never expect. And Acts 10.20 is a perfect example of that because the Lord is telling Peter something startling to a Jewish man. I'm sending you to a Gentile household. And they're coming to invite you by my sovereign direction. Long before the era of GPS, God had his own GPS and used it to demonstrate to Peter that the ultimate GPS is God's gift of guidance. The ultimate GPS is knowing that you have a good shepherd, the shepherd and bishop of your soul. And that like the 23rd Psalm, you can say, I shall not want because he guides me in paths of righteousness. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The Lord restores my soul. Peter then, with certainly an amazement, racking his brain, welcomes these men in, a little evening fellowship. They spent the night at Simon the Tanner's and started out early the next morning for their journey. And so what I see when they get to Cornelius' house is a, a kind of an embryo, if you will, a kind of an embryonic vision of what the early church experienced that's just like what we're experiencing here in this congregation, and that is that we are really called in our life just as Cornelius was opening his home to Simon Peter. We are really called to come before the Lord to come with a desire to open our hearts to learn and to grow and to receive from God. And in the words of Cornelius in verse 33, I hope you can see that one 
text in your Bible as well. He says to Peter when he gets to his house, I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God. I love this 33rd verse of Acts 10. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. What a great picture of the embryonic vision of true church life. They're saying, we want to hear what you have been sent to give us from God. So Peter opens his mouth. There's a kind of a technical expression in Scripture that implies a, a releasing of vital information that has formerly been disclosed as the prophet would open his mouth and speak. And the accent on that is they're about to get something life-transforming. Look in your Bible, just about three more verses before we conclude. And that is in verse 36, Peter is explaining to them what it is that they needed to learn. And uh, Ian, this just timed out for some reason. So um, he is saying to them, you know the message in verse 36, God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, for God was with him. These three verses comprise a kind of a, the heart, the essence of what every person needs to know to bring that thirst for the living God to the King of kings and Lord of lords, and to receive him. It's very simple, and yet it's very factual. Peter's message was not about some philosophy or some theory or some psychology. His message was about the living person of Jesus of Nazareth. And in that 38th verse, the Trinity, all three persons of the singular God, the one true God and three persons are included in verse 38. God the Father, look at it in your Bible, God the Father anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God the Father was with the Son. Just as John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this wondrous Flashpoint of the Trinity is embedded in what scholars call the kerygma of the gospel, simply the preaching, that is the heart of what needs to be preached. And wrapped around that kerygma is the wonderful invitation to every person who yearns to know the true and living God. And behind that, Peter explains personally that when he was sent to the household of Cornelius, he came to understand from that sheet lowered from heaven in the dream, he came to understand something he'd never known before. In fact, I love the way he put it emphatically, now I understand. I like to say it like this, oh, now I get it. Okay, a little bit tense there. And Peter is saying, now I get it. Now I understand. The good news of God's plan, yes, came through the Jewish people, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. But that was because God had a way to bring salvation to the entire world through a chosen people who, though they failed him repeatedly, God brought 
the triumphant servant, the living Christ. Now, what this really tells us is that everything we're about here at Liberty Church, everything we're about in sharing the good news of the gospel, is about the living person of Jesus Christ. It's about the one and the only one who could take away our sin. So that wrap-up is where the entire story concludes in such a beautiful way. The two things that are like the, the, the outworking of this wondrous plan of God's guidance is forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness, that release of the soul from the domination of sin in our life, is the very reason the angel that came to Joseph, the husband of Mary in the very first chapter of Matthew, says, you shall name the baby Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is the banner blessing over all who come to Christ. That wondrous promise that my sins, my wrongdoing, my evil, the corruption of my heart, the real wrong that is woven inside of me, my Savior Jesus on the cross has shed his atoning blood, and through the resurrection has promised not just a covering of my sins, it's not just like a, a blanket over my sin or a, a big, huge, giant Band-Aid. I don't know about you, I would, have, I would have needed a huge Band-Aid over my sins. But no, the taking away of sin. I, I compare it to the, to the gavel in a courtroom coming down on the bench and the announcement, not guilty, go free. And this is exactly what that 39th verse says, and it's so beautiful to understand it and to grasp it. Excuse me, the 43rd verse. Read this, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And because of the forgiveness of sin, God gives to these Gentile believers in Cornelius' house, as Peter is preaching right in the middle of his message, suddenly the Holy Spirit's powerful touch is upon all who are in Cornelius' household. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. The jubilation of the touch of God becomes visually real. And later when Peter is called on the carpet by some of his Jewish brethren, well, why did you go to the home of a Gentile? He tells them this whole story, and he explains that while I was preaching, right in the middle of my sermon, <laughs> the Holy Spirit sweeps into the room, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and who was I to stand against God? This is an awesome turning point in the gospel so that it becomes clear it becomes clear that what God had planned all along is what was later described in Ephesians as Christ Jesus removing that wall of partition. The ethnos, the nations, the ethnic groups, all the ethnicities. Oh, it's a wonderful thing in the world when you begin to look at it and see that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son means that in every single ethnic group under the planet, on the planet, they are every human being as an object of God's love. And then when we begin to see that and we realize that this global gospel and the goodness of God 
is to be expressed in our local church experience so that churches become living demonstrations of a love that unites people across all of these spectrums, but not because of human power, but because of the glory of the God who designed humanity with all of this diversity. It is a wonderful thing to look around and realize that Christ Jesus is our peace. I want to ask you to read this closing text here. It's from Ephesians because it capsulizes what was learned and demonstrated in the house of Cornelius. Read aloud with me just that banner there. Christ Jesus is our peace, removing the partition wall, making one man out of the two. That means one body, the body of Christ. I want to pray, and as we pray, I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit could help each of us to be grateful for the thirst in our own heart and to pray for that thirst to grow. At the same time, to know there are people you may not see the thirst in, but we can pray confidently that God will bring about a thirst for this wondrous forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit and the people that we love. Lord, we are here today, Lord, to give you honor and praise and to thank you that in this good of the gospel, this global gospel, this, this barrier gospel, this gospel that touches every ethnicity across the planet, this gospel of the kingdom that's going forth into all the world and humble and grateful fellowships like Liberty Church are tiny part of that of that massive movement so God show us what it means to be faithful calling and Lord in this house today bring an awakening in our lives of how that thirst to know you can grow even when we don't understand but our innermost yearning is prodded to say Lord show me more take me into the holy of holies take me beyond where I've been I want to know you I want to know you. I want to know you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness and grace today. We also want to take a moment to thank you as we, we pray for all who are serving today. Thank you for this opportunity to, to share and break bread together, to fellowship together. Bless the koinonia of, of your people. We thank you for those lovingly giving of their time and have through this week before to prepare for this special day. In the mighty name of our Savior, we praise you, Lord. And now, once again, could you give back to the Lord the gift he's given of us of shalom and just shout out the shalom of God. Shalom. Amen. Amen. The peace of God. Amen.